We're in John chapter 20 again. And if you will stand with me for the reading of Scripture, we're beginning with verse number 19. On the evening of that day, that resurrection day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. The uh, English here is a little conservative. They were overjoyed. Then the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And that's the commission. This is John's great commission. And then he, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. They can't do the great commission without the, without the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 23, if you, forg if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And this is not individual. Uh, it's not, not for individuals. This is for the church. And I'll explain that. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, Sunday night, <laughs> uh, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and uh, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have seen and yet believed. Have not seen, excuse me, who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In the previous message, the risen Lord appeared to Mary Magdalene while she remained grieving there at the tomb, determined to locate and to retrieve the body of her beloved rabbi. She had previously reported the empty tomb to Peter and John, who ran there and then confirmed her observation. However, they also noted something else quite unusual. The grave clothes remained in place. 
they took his body, they would have taken the grave clothes too. And the head cloth was folded by itself in another place. So this adds a dimension to the problem of what had happened to his body. And I'm sure they were puzzled by that. And yet John explains here that they did not yet believe the scriptures. So they returned home, leaving Mary to grieve alone. And while she's standing there grieving alone, she peers into the tomb and sees two angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body had lain. And I don't know what she thought. Perhaps she mistook them for men. What would they be doing in the tomb like this? And they said to her, Why are you weeping? What are you looking for? And she said, They've taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have laid him. So then she turns around, and here's the Lord. And he has now supernaturally withheld from her recognition of himself. And she mistook him for the gardener. And so he asks her the same questions. Why are you weeping? And what are you looking for? And she said to him, They've taken, if you, please show me where you have taken my Lord and I'll retrieve him. I'll get him and take him away. And then he revealed himself to her by merely speaking your name, Mary. Mary. Immediately she knew who he was and fell at his feet clutching his ankles. And he told her, uh, you've got to stop this, Mary, because I have not yet ascended to my Father and to your Father, my God and your God, but go tell my disciples that I'm going to the Father. Mark uh, adds here in uh, his Gospel, uh, and she, by the way, she. this is what she did. She obeyed. She ran to them and said, uh, I've seen the Lord. And Mark adds that there in Mark 16, verse 11, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. It's not that they did not believe it. They would not believe it. Isn't that interesting? We are so prone to unbelief. When, the, when these things are clearly evidenced to us, we just, I'm not convinced. We are so prone to unbelief. And I think this is an interesting detail which uh, confirms my observation last week that when John saw the grave clothes and believed it wasn't that he believed he was alive but that he believed Mary's report that his body was not there yep I can see that she's he's not here although Jesus had stated on a number of occasions that he would rise from the dead those listening did not and I th believe could not this is, a, this is a grace of God 
They could not comprehend the truth. And I would give you one brief example here. Back in the beginning of John's Gospel, when Jesus cleansed the temple for the first time, the Jews came to him angrily asking him, by what authority do you have to do this? Upset the apple cart, so to speak. And Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And John comments here that, they, that he, this he spoke of his body. And then, but then he gives this uh, word that uh, they didn't believe it. But it was only after he was risen from the grave that they believed it. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and then, and then only, they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. There in John 2.22. So only after his resurrection did the disciples then really believe the scriptures. And only after he appears to them. And that's what we're talking about this morning. So I'm, we, I want you to see three things. First is the evening encounter with the Prince of Peace, which is verses 19 through 23. And then we will look at the uh, compassionate restoration of a skeptic, Thomas, which is 24 through 29. And then thirdly, here is the uh, conclusion, uh, the Thomas and John's purpose for the gospel in verses 30 and 31. So let's look at uh, the first here, the an, an evening encounter with the Prince of Peace. First of all, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances are four in number in the Gospel of John. Three of them are in chapter 20. Uh, Mary Magdalene, and now the disciples in, the, in this uh, locked room, and then thirdly, Thomas. And then the fourth occasion is in chapter 21, there by the Sea of Tiberias, which we will look at next week. John presents a scene of confusion in this second resurrection appearance of the Lord. They're all huddled together in this room with the door locked out of fear of the Jews. If they crucified the Lord, what were they going to do with his disciples? I mean, they were terrified. And they're shaking in their boots, as it were. And then, now they've got all this confusion because Mary had come to them and reported that she had seen the risen Lord. Whether she was there or not, I, I doubt. But uh, what, what, what do you make of that? That's more questions and mounting confusion in their mind. Matthew reports in, I, I want to, this, this uh, kind of a little side detail, I was setting out of Matthew again. Matthew reports that the women who went to the tomb to anoint the body, but found the stone rolled away, and his body gone, also saw, uh, saw an angel. Uh, Matthew only talks about one angel, Mary saw two. But the one angel said, He is not here, for he is risen. And as he said, come see the place where he lay. 
And so they departed quickly. Uh, oh, and, uh, excuse me. Then go to his disciples that he may uh, that uh, and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy and ran to tell the disciples. So we have the women women also reporting. And then, but we read here that Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, but go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. So we've got, this raises some questions, and there are those who have argued that, that uh, the Gospels here conflict with each other and they don't really tell the story correctly uh, that uh, so you know each of them has invented his own story as it were and we can't really trust the Bible at all I don't think that's the case at all what I think happened was Mary was leading the pack they came found the stone rolled away and she discovered the body was missing she didn't stay there. She didn't investigate. She immediately turned and went back to the disciples. While she's gone, these women are standing there and they see that, it's, that the tomb is empty. Did they go home uh, also? I don't know. But we know from John's account that Mary Magdalene was the first to see the risen Lord. But I would also remind you that when she went back to the disciples, she said to them, we have seen the stone rolled away and so on. We. So obviously she was with these ladies at that point. So how these details all work out, maybe the ladies left then Mary comes back. She sees the risen Lord and then she goes and tells them, perhaps while the other ladies are coming back to the tomb. They look in and see the angel who says to them, he's not here, he's risen. Go tell his disciples that he's risen from the, the grave. So they get all excited, turn around and Jesus meets them and says, don't be afraid. I don't know. You know, it's 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 hard. We, we'll, I think the Lord will sort it out for us one day. But I tell you what, I believe the scriptures. I don't believe there's a contradiction anywhere in them, and uh, the problem is with our understanding, not with the record. Not with the record. But secondly, here Jesus now suddenly comes into the room, into that closed room. Here's another evidence of his resurrection abilities. He can withhold his his identity from anybody he wants to, and now he can go into closed rooms without opening the door. You know what? We're going to be able to do that one day too. We're going to be like Jesus. But he suddenly comes into that closed room. They're huddled in there, shivering, wondering what in the world is going on, confused and 
frustrated perhaps. And Jesus walks into the room and says to them, Peace be with you. Wow. That's what they need right now. They need the peace of God. Peace is a, is a very important word of greeting. It's the typical Hebrew shalom. Shalom. It's the Greek equivalent of it. I should mention that. But it denotes the desire for wholeness, completeness to the ones greeted. It expresses a desire for their well-being, their harmony, and their security. Peace be to you. Everything's all right. You don't have anything to fear. You don't need to uh, worry. Everything is working out perfectly. And you're safe. You're safe. And as he spoke to them, he showed them his hands and his side. And I think very importantly, Jesus does not rebuke them or scold them in any way. I mean, they have fled from him when the arrest took place. Peter denied him three times. They've acted like silly fools. And Jesus doesn't come to them and rebukes them. He says, peace be to you. And then shows them his hands and his side. Repeats it twice. But he came there for, to settle this issue of their unbelief. He had purchased that peace for them in his cross work. As he And he had previously said to them, Peace, back in John chapter 14, before he went to the cross, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But you see, right at that point, they have no spiritual ability to hang on to that promise, and it has not helped them there. So now the Lord speaks again, peace to them. In his resurrected body, he introduced to them again this gracious gift. As Paul explains there in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, since we have been justified by what faith? We have peace with God. No more enmity. Peace is a word of enmity. It is words of Settled enmity. No more enmity. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this, into this grace. The grace that produced the peace. This grace. In which we stand. See? Our having to do with our well-being, with our harmony, with our security. In this peace we stand. In this grace, this grace, this grace of peace we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Wow. Peace is not, it's not quietness of heart. Somebody says, well, I, I feel peaceful today. I don't, I'm not upset. I'm not troubled. I have 
my peace of my soul. This is not what Jesus is talking about. That that is a consequence of this peace, but this is not what it's speaking about. It is what it is is settled enmity with God. Jesus Christ settled our enmity with God on the cross. Now God is favorably inclined to us. When Jesus said, it is finished, it is now played out in this application of redemptive benefits, and one of which is peace, purchased there on that cross. The question is, do you know it? Do you have his peace residing in you? We're living in troubled times, and you know, the more we find out, the more we learn about what's going on, in our world today, the more unsettling it becomes. But I have complete peace. I know that God has everything under control. And He has a plan and program that He's working out for my benefit and for the glory of His Son. Wow. So thirdly, then, we see here the response of the disciples which is a which was remarkable gladness of heart and again i said i really think the word should have been translated here great joy they were filled with great joy because that's what peace brings great joy And Jesus again pronounced peace on them and then he gave them this commission. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. I think the Synoptic Gospels expand on that. John just gives us a little short version of it, but like for example in Matthew 28, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, uh, baptizing them and teaching them all things that I have what, that I have uh, said to you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. While an actual reporting of these post-resurrection events, and I think he's, that's what he's doing, he's giving an actual report, I asked the question, could this account also be regarded as a symbolic disclosure of new covenant benefits. He is, he is charged the church now with its responsibility. We know what we're supposed to do now. <clears throat> the very first thing that this risen Christ tells his disciples is go tell this message. This is what he told Mary. Go tell my disciples that you've seen me. Now he's telling us the same thing. He's telling the disciples, you go tell the world that I'm risen. That I'm the Lord. That I have salvation for my people who will trust me and believe me for it. And that's the church's responsibility to get this gospel message out to the ends of the world. 
And I think he's doing it here in kind of a symbolic way. So what does he do? He gives them the charge and then he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. Did they actually receive the Holy Spirit at that point? Well, we know from uh, Acts chapter 2 that on the day of Pentecost is when the Spirit was given. And he told them before he ascended into heaven, you will wait in Jerusalem for me. Don't, you, don't go do, you don't do anything, but you wait for the promise of the Father. So I think this is a symbolic act here. He breathed on them, so to speak, to re- and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit." You, yeah, they were going to, they were going to receive it, and that's the power in which they would operate with respect to the Great Commission. We can't do the Great Commission unless we are endued with the power from on high. He told them, "Wait in Jerusalem." until you be endued with power from on high, then you're going to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world. Receive the Spirit. And I think, I think it also bespoke of the one aspect of the, of the new covenant that was lacking in the old covenant, and that is Regeneration. God saved Old Testament saints, but they were not born again. Because the new birth is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Born again of the Spirit, as he told uh, Nicodemus there in uh, John chapter 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed, uh, uh, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled, made peace with us to himself and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, taking this message of peace to the world. That's the church's business. And this is complemented here by the declaration in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven you. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, that's very confusing. And, And it's interesting that the Lord Jesus also gave that uh, same uh, declaration twice before in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's a little different, but it's basically the same. And then in chapter 18, in verse 18, it says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this, this pronouncement, what is it? And I would remind you that even in the Gospel of Matthew, it's always in the context of the church. In the 16th chapter, it's in the context of uh, 
Peter's uh, there when they're when they're up uh, there in the north. There, uh, he gave he tells Peter, "Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." And in that context, he says, "And I give you the keys of the kingdom." In fact, that's the very next statement. He's speaking to the disciples or to the apostles here is representing the church that he is going to build. And that their preaching of the gospel has this effect. You preach the gospel to people, it either binds them or looses them. But that's not your business. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit. So, that's part of the Great Commission. And in, uh, this truth, is, I think, is also evidence when Peter instructed the Corinthian church, saying, when you are assembled in the name or the authority of the Lord Jesus, and my Spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are too, and then he gives them instructions. That brings me to the second point here, and that's the compassionate restoration of a skeptic. We read that Thomas was not among the, well, evidently Paul, Thomas was not among the disciples on that first occasion when the risen Lord first appeared to the disciples. Thus John turns his attention to this skeptic. And, I, you know, we call him the Doubting Thomas, Thomas the Doubter. I, I really think that's kind of a not entirely fair way to characterize this man. And for this reason, by the way, Thomas means twin. So apparently he had another sibling that was like him. <laughs> we don't hear anything about him at all. But although, uh, so his response to the disciples saying the Lord, the risen Lord, was, was skeptical. In fact, I think it was more than skeptical. It bordered on obstinacy. But his life, however, was characterized by devoted loyalty to Jesus. And let me show you that. While named in the, in the other Gospels, John alone fleshes out Thomas's character. And in chapter 11 and verse 16 we read, so Thomas, called the twin, said to the disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. Jesus was going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. He was going to walk into dangerous territory. They knew that the arrest warrant was out for him. And they're all worried. We don't want to go there. That's dangerous. And Jesus is determined to go and Thomas says to the rest of them, come on, let's go, we'll die with him. I don't think he was saying that in any, in any sarcastic way. I think he meant it. If, we're, if, we're, if he goes up there and dies, let's go along and die with him. And then in, in the 14th chapter, in verse 5, when Jesus is giving them instruction concerning uh, what uh, they are to know after he, go, he, he goes, he, Jesus talked about the way he was, and uh, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. 
And how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the, and the life. No man can come unto the Father except through me. So here John is presenting him to be honestly confused, but willing to follow Jesus even to death. Jesus replies to Thomas, also support this. They're patient with understanding and without rebuke or displeasure. He didn't come into that room and say, Thomas, get your act together. No. He greeted him with peace again. Peace be to you. I think there's two interesting facts that emerge here from John's account. The first one is that Thomas is the only source of the fact that nails were used to secure Jesus to the cross. Unless I put my fingers into his the nail prints in his hands. Criminal, usually criminals were tied to the cross. On occasions they were nailed to the cross. But, on, but most of the time they were just merely tied to the cross. And then the second thing that I want to point out here is Thomas's confession, which was tremendous. My Lord and my God. Taught in the words of D.A. Carson, the most unyielding skeptic has been bequeathed to us the most profound confession. The most unyielding skeptic has bequeathed to us the most profound confession. So, why the, we might ask the question, why was Thomas absent from the assembly on that first occasion? It's not, it's not told us. But uh, it might be noted here that Thomas is like a lot of believers who skip scheduled services for whatever reason. And I would also point out to you that Jesus didn't go to Thomas's house to present himself. He waited till they were assembled again to come into the room. Providence planned for this occasion to seal the gospel's purpose to summon faith in the reader. And we'll see that in the, in the closing verses of this chapter. Thomas's reluctance is seen not only in his absence at Christ's appearance, but also in his denial of the of the dis, the, the disciples' report of having seen him there in twenty four and twenty five. Unless I see I see it and touch it, I will never believe it. So why? What was really going on? I think he isolated himself in in a sense of hopeless despair when his Lord was crucified. Isolation in times of discouragement and sorrow is really dangerous. So that makes the assembling of believers all the more important, particularly in times of persecution. So Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. 
Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And sorrow often results in irrational conclusions. And I think it bred in Thomas a willful disbelief. He's disappointed. He's discouraged. He's afraid. So what would it take to remove this from him? The report of the disciples was clearly not enough. They said, we've seen the risen Lord. I don't, I don't believe you. I just don't believe you. A.W. Pink observes, the disciples were not callous and indifferent to their brother's failure, but they sought him out to tell him how they had seen the risen Lord. Unbelief then is a terribly besetting sin, and Thomas utterly refused to consider the credible testimony of ten competent witnesses. And, and I would argue that it's because he put the condition of his faith on human experience, not on the foundation of God's word. They said, we have seen the risen Lord. The blame partly lies with the disciples. Because of their saying, we have seen the risen Lord. But they did not share what they heard from him. And I remind you, Romans ten seventeen. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But here's a tremendous thing. I mean, just it just took a, just a matter of, of a couple of seconds. But oh, the wonder of grace that Jesus suddenly appears to the assembled disciples exactly a week later. And again, the doors are barred from within. But in this instance, nothing is said of any fear of the Jews. Why bar the door? I don't know. And again, Jesus greeted them. Peace be to you. But this time for Thomas's benefit. And then he extends the invitation to, for Thomas to touch his wounds. Now, doesn't this also tell you something about his omniscience? Jesus knew what he had said to the disciples who reported his being alive. So now Jesus is going to Restore his faith. And so he calls him to return to the first principles upon which faith rests. His own sacrifice. I died on the cross for you. Touch my na the nail prints. Put your hand into my side. And then he admonished him. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Stop unbelieving. But show yourself to be a believer. And what was Thomas's response? Falling to his knees, he worshipped. My Lord and my God. His confession was personal. My Lord. His, it was submissive. My Lord. He acknowledged him as Lord. We throw that word around loosely. What does that word Lord mean? It means boss. It means Lord. 
And it was insightful. My Lord and my God. In 1 Corinthians, it's a powerful, this was a powerful spirit-prompted testimony to the person of Jesus. So we read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The doubter gave the strongest and most convincing testimony to the absolute deity of Jesus of the deity of Jesus from any human lips. My Lord and my God. We said Jesus was not God. That's what Thomas said. And Jesus didn't correct him. I think this is also a remnant of the response of the people when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel. There in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 39, when the fire of God fell and consumed the sacrifice, all the people saw it. They fell on their faces and they said, The Lord! He is God. The Lord! He is God. And here's, the, here's God's grace again. And then Jesus turns and gives him a gentle rebuke. You have believed because you have seen me. Then a beatitude. Blessed are those who haven't seen me and still believed. First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Think about that. I've never seen the risen Lord. He's never appeared to me in any way, shape, or form. I've never felt any shaking in my soul. I've never seen any visions on my bed. I've never had any dreams. But I believe with all my heart that everything this book says about Jesus is true. So that, that takes us then to this. The third point here, Thomas and the, John's purpose of the gospel. It almost seems like this should be at the end of his, the, of his gospel in the 21st verse, or 21st chapter, but it's not. It's right here. And, but it, I believe it's here because it directly relates to Thomas's confession and then Jesus gentle rebuke and beatitude so notice the language again I'm going to, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there first of all the language of verses thirty and thirty one points to their being parenthetic. They link themselves to the previous passage. 
And they have the force of the Greek, therefore. So the message is, those who have not seen the risen Christ and yet have believed are blessed. Therefore, this book has been composed to this end that you who have never seen the risen Christ may believe in him. But there's then the second point is, it's also a short summary of, of John's purpose. On the one hand, there are many more signs that could be cited. But on the other hand, these are sufficient and are given in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So I want to ask you, do you believe? I mean, do you believe? Do you believe to life? Do you, is your eternal life, do you have it and possess eternal life because you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? I tell you that when the road gets rocky and rough, and boy, I'll tell you the pressure to doubt comes in like poor old Thomas. You better have a a, a spirit born faith and a spirit empowered faith to secure you in those times. Just like Peter said. Having not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, yet you believe him. You trust him. You, you walk in full trust and confidence of him and rejoice in it with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And the, re, the outcome, the blessing, the benefit is the salvation of your souls. So let's... Let's consider then three points here over the lesson. First of all, Jesus is wonderfully patient and kind to his own in their willful and obstinate sin. Oh, I'm so grateful for that. He's not going to let us persist in it. He finds us in it and he rebukes us in it, but he will not let us persist in it. He will come and he will correct us. And sometimes he does so very hurtfully. But it's for our benefit. Chastening is not pleasant. But it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness in them that are exercised by it. So says the Hebrew, writer of Hebrews. And it's that we may then have obedient faith. We may walk in obedient faith in Him. Then secondly, it's a serious fault when we refuse to believe unless we experience some tangible or visible manifestation of God's presence or purpose among them. Lord, I'm not going to believe you and I'm not going to do this unless you show me. Mm -mm, no. That's what, he, what does He tell you? What does he write in the Word? What is written clearly in the Word of God? See, the beatitude that Jesus gave to Thomas has to govern our spiritual walk. Even though we have not believed, or seen, we believe. We have not seen, we believe. And then thirdly, God's plan to reach the ends of the earth with the truth is that we simply declare what has been written about Christ in the Word of God. 
That's what this is all about. Jesus told Mary, you go tell the disciples you've seen the risen Lord. They didn't believe it. Then he comes and stands in their midst and says, believe it. Now go tell it. And they went to tell Thomas and he didn't believe it. <laughs> but then Jesus fixed it with Thomas too. But then he tells us, go there, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. It's the work of the Spirit then to open hearts and eyes to the truth and save those who see it. I, my job is not to try to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ. My job is to preach this word and let the Spirit of God do the proving. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have this morning of coming to you to consider these truths. Lord, help our unbelief. We do believe. I think of the, the man there who brought his demon-possessed child to Jesus who rebuked him and he said and then he asked him do you believe and the man said Lord I believe but help thou mine unbelief Lord we, we often believe but we still are possessed with doubts help our unbelief we we'll praise you and thank you Lord for the spirit of God and for the word of God as it works in us true faith rest firmly and joyfully upon the truth even as we live in a very turbulent age just like when Jesus was with the disciples in the boat and the storm came up and Jesus was asleep and the disciples were fearful of drowning Lord that's how that's the world we live in Lord may we be like Jesus and be sleeping in the boat knowing that he can say in a moment be still and the winds and the waves cease. Lord, you have all power. And we trust you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.